0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha. This week, we are studying the Torah portion of Shmini. lots of drama, highs and lows, ecstasy and agony. And then the second half of the Torah portion, or the last piece of the Torah portion, speaks about the laws of kosher, which is what we are going to pick up right now. So yesterday, we spoke about what constitutes... Hey, Sarah. Good to see you. Welcome. Hey, guys. Hey. So yesterday we spoke about what constitutes a kosher animal, and what constitutes a kosher fish, what constitutes a kosher bird, etc. And when it came to animals, when it came to animals, we said it has to have two signs, which are um, uh, split hooves and chewing its cud. It has to do both of those things, or it has to have both those features to be kosher. Uh, When it came to fish, we said fins and scales. When it came to birds, we were a little bit more evasive. We talked about the birds that are not kosher, which seems to leave a lot of birds that are open. But even for that, I didn't mention yesterday, there's a very strict tradition of which birds are kosher, which are not. Chicken, of course, it's a kosher bird. I don't know if it's even considered a bird. Is chicken a bird? I guess it's a bird. It's a flightless bird. If you see a chicken flying in the air... You may need to adjust your prescription, uh, right? You may, may need to adjust your glasses because that, that's not a thing that should be happening. Nonetheless, um, uh, what, we, what we learned yesterday were some sort of uh, uh, um, guidelines regarding kosher and non-kosher life, animals, fish, birds. Um, but Donna asked a very good question, which is, now that we know what's kosher, well, what's the next step of the process, which is not discussed immediately right here? But we know when it comes to um, animals and even uh, poultry, we know that it has to be shechted, it has to be slaughtered. When it comes to fish, however, nothing has to happen with the fish. Fish, you take it out of the water, and that's it. Good to go. You don't have to shech the fish. You don't need to slaughter fish. The question is why? Why do why do animals require um, an additional um, uh, step of preparation to make it kosher or to be kosher, whereas fish, it's ready to go. So I, I can't tell you the literal answer, but what I can tell you is the Kabbalistic answer, the mystical answer. So to understand this, we need to explore a tale of three kingdoms. Land, water, and... One second. Land. I water and land water and sky you said sky yes. you said sky yeah sky
1: air air
0: air right land water air so animals are land creatures and land is 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 connected with earthliness land is um Physicality, earthliness, like literally, the earth is symbolic of materialism, like, like earthliness. Now, there's uh, there's tremendous blessings in the earth and growth and you know all that wonderful stuff, but it it symbolizes again spiritually, symbolically, it symbolizes earthliness. So to take something from the earth and transform it into spiritual food, right? Because food is not just biological; it's also spiritual. Kosher means you, we can eat anything, but kosher food means that it's also Pure for the soul, which I probably should have mentioned yesterday. It's not just that it's good for the body, but it's now it's 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 optimized for the soul as well. To take something from the land, from the earth, and make it soul compatible, you got to do a little bit. You got to you got to do some work with that. So you have to shacht both pipes, the kana and the veshet, which is the windpipe and the food pipe. You got a shaft, you got a slaughter. When the, the, the incision of the knife, and you don't go with force against the neck, you just go along the side, and it, but it's so sharp, et cetera. But it has to go through both of those pipes to be kosher. In other words, you have to do a little bit of effort, and, and that's like a transfer. It's symbolically, that there's a transformation. Elevate. Elevate. elevate and transformation, almost like a reclamation of it, like moving it from land to spirit. Now, when it comes to air, so that's animals. When it comes to birds, like chicken, for example, um, every Sunday I used to hang out with my grandfather as he shacked the chickens. See, animals, he drove off. He used to drive, you know, hours, you know, either every day or once a week, whatever it was, to go shack animals in a slaughterhouse in a different city, Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, Sandusky, Ohio, and, you know, like, like in other places. Uh, but the chickens, there was a place around the corner that did chickens, you know, where he was able to shuck chickens. So every Sunday I was hanging out with him. The place was called Greenberg's Poultry. Greenberg's Poultry on Murray Avenue. It was like an icon. You walked in there, everyone's wearing white, like white. Uh, <laughs> it was splattered with blood. I don't want to get too gory. Whatever. So um, the when you shuck the chicken, it only has to cut one of the two pipes. There's less transformation, preparation, elevation, transference of energy that needs to happen because you're not dealing with a land animal. You're dealing with a an air creature, right? You're not dealing with something of the earth. You're dealing with something that, oh, oh, let me clarify, something that sometimes is on the earth, but also is sometimes in the sky. Are you with me? Birds can also go on the ground or they go in trees that are connected to the ground, and then they also fly. So it's it's a little bit, Birds are a little bit here and there, here and there, a little low, a little high, a little low, a little high. So you need some sort of transference, like one more step, but it's not as severe, if you will, as a land animal. And then you have fish. Fish are in the water. Water represents spirituality. In other words, fish are already in a spiritual environment. Fish do not, nothing has to happen to the fish. Just take the fish out and it's ready to go. Oh, you have Murray Avenue. What do you have? What is this?
1: The Facebook's
0: page. No, no, right? no. That's Murray oh, Avenue said, Kosher. No, no. That's uh, that's the kosher like the 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 quality um, kosher gourmet that we have here, like the little kosher supermarket okay. thing. That's that over there. I was just
1: uh, excited because my father's name's Murray. And there you I'm go. I'm well, okay. You, <laughs> you you
0: heard Murray Avenue, and I was speaking your language already. I got it. Right. Uh, but no, this was Greenberg's, like Greenberg. Greenberg's okay. poultry. But anyway, back to the story. So. So that which needs to be brought all the way over from the physical to spiritual, you got to do a lot of work, you got to shecht it, both both pipes. The the bird that's here and there, it, it fluctuates between earth and sky, earth and sky. You need to do a little bit. Then you have the fish that are totally in a spiritual environment. Fish, you just need to take them out of the water and it's good to go. In Kabbalah, it refers to the three souls. There's the animal soul. There's the godly soul. And there's the intellectual soul. And if I were to line it up in the right order, it would be animal soul, intellectual soul, godly soul. The animal soul is like an animal. You need to do a lot of work to get that over on the good side. The intellectual soul, right, is a little here, a little there. It's like the birds. It's like it's grounded, but it can also be philosophical, but there could be ego, it could be self serving. We can
1: our base, our basic state, our neutral state, pretty it's, much. It's right? neutral,
0: so it's here and there, right? Um, intelligence can be used for good things, for bad things. Right. We can justify negative behavior, overcoming folly Sunday, right? The whole thing is about how we use our we mind to sometimes to get us into yeah. trouble. We can use our mind to get us out of trouble, so it's like the bird. It's not, but, uh, that's the second soul. And the third soul is the godly soul. That's like the fish in the water. It's pure, it doesn't need anything else to make it kosher, it's ready to go. I mean, assuming it's kosher, right? Assuming it's in the scales, that fish is good. So anyway, this is like a bit of a, of a treatment on it. And, and it's, been, it's been a little bit since I've learned this in the original sources, um, but this is my recollection. You asked the question before the class, so I figured we would address it at the top. So a tale of three kingdoms, land, air, and sea. Land creatures need the most work to make it kosher. That's like the animal soul. Air means also air and earth. Needs a little bit less. Sea creatures, good to go. Good to go. Don't need any shkita at all. They don't need another another step of preparation. As long as it's kosher, it's in the sea, you can pull it out and it's good to go.
1: So we're more like the air, right? The intermediary. I mean, we could go. We have all three. We have all three. We have
0: all three. We have all three. And 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 it's important to know what we're dealing with. Like, when we're struggling with our animal soul, okay, we got to do a lot of heavy lifting. When it's our intellectual soul, okay, we just have to redirect it. When it's the godly soul, you don't have to do anything. Good to go. Leverage your godly soul. You don't need to convert your godly soul. Your godly soul is already on preaching to the choir. It's like, it's good. Your godly soul is, that's where you want to be. That's what you want to, you want... You want to gather it from the water and bring it in. In other words, like the fish in the water is great, but you you want to enjoy it, right? So it's about, you have a godly soul. Each of us has a godly soul. It's about accessing it and drawing from it into our conscious lives, but we don't need to modify it. Its, it's, it's message is a, is a kosher message. All right, let's jump into some new material today. And the goal today will be to finish um, our exploration of the Torah portion. We kind of ran through a little bit at the end yesterday. We ran through the um, Torah reading and um, the sixth reading. It talked about impurity and coming into contact with the dead carcasses of the non-Kosher animals and how that renders one impure until that evening. You gotta go to mikvah and then, and then that, and then when evening comes, it's it's a purification. And that's the that's kind of the way we left it yesterday. And I don't know that I really want to do a a super deep dive into that, but I think it's just important to remember what we were talking about because it kind of does pick up from that place. We've talked about if a dead, okay, a non-kosher animal or bird or weasel or whatever that then uh, dies, so you have the carcass of said non-kosher thing that touches a metal vessel. So at the end of yesterday's reading, we said... um, you know what? Let me just pull it up for all of us. We'll we'll look at it together. I'll show you I'll show you what I'm looking at right now. It was the last verse of yesterday's reading. And if any of these dead creatures fall upon anything, it that thing that fell on will become unclean. It, it also becomes impure. Whether it's a wooden vessel, a garment, a hide or a sack, any vessel with with which work is done. In other words, if you have a dead mouse, I mean gross, right? That's in a cup, uh a bowl, a pot, you're pulling out a, oh, gross, why am I even articulating the, the idea? But imagine you find a dead a mouse in a pot in your thing, your pantry or whatever um, uh, cabinets or something. So what happens? So not, it, super gross, clean it out. But back in the day, it would also become impure. So what's, what do you do? It shall be immersed in water and remains unclean until evening. And then it becomes clean. There's a way to kosher it, or not even kosher. There's a way to purify it. Okay, and uh, we did not do Rashi on that. It might be worthwhile to do a quick Rashi on that last verse. Um, Immersed in water, Rashi says, even after immersion, it remains unclean until the sun sets. Okay, now we're ready for reading number seven. But Leviticus chapter eleven verse thirty-three. But any earthenware vessel into whose interior any of them falls, now we're not talking about metal or glass or, you know, leather, or no, earthenware, right? Earthenware, clay, pottery, you know, China, all these things, earthenware vessel. Into whose interior any of them uh, falls, whatever is inside it shall become unclean and you shall break the vessel itself. So, for example, if the same, I know it's gross, dead mouse, is in a, um, an earthenware vessel, then anything else in that airspace becomes unclean along with it, with the, with the mouse, uh, the dead mouse. And what do you do with the earthenware vessel? You can't, you can't purify it. You can't purify it. You have to break the vessel itself. Why well, do I have to break the vessel? So Rashi explains like this. This teaches us that an earthenware vessel cannot be purified in a mikvah. You can't just dip it in the mikveh and it becomes pure. Consequently, if you wish to use it, you must break it so that it cannot be used for its original use. So you can use the shards for something. If you break it, you can then, I don't know, what would you use broken clay for? An art project or something. You can't use it as that bowl or pot anymore. You have to break it, and once you break it, it loses its its identity, and then whatever happens, happens after that. So, But it's interesting. It's like we find by earthenware vessels. You can't kosher it. You can't purify it. It's like... It's very much, uh, its status is very, I'll call it fragile. It's like very um, delicate. Okay, back inside. Let's continue with verse al off Verse 34. Now, of any food that is usually eaten, upon which water comes. Okay, take a look at this. Imagine you have a bunch of grapes. Okay, any food that's usually eaten. So a bunch of grapes, and then upon which water comes. You have like drops of water on the grapes. So that will become unclean if it comes in contact with something impure. It can become impure. And any beverage that is usually drunk, which is in any vessel, shall become unclean as well. Now, it doesn't become unclean magically. I know the Torah seems to indicate, oh, it just becomes unclean. You have grapes and water falls on it? Uh Uh-oh, now you're toast. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying if there's something that's a food and then has water, and then something like a mouse, a dead rat, a dead mouse, a dead you know, whatever, you know, comes in contact, then it becomes ritually impure. But it requires a little bit of water or something to make it in that state of impurity. But obviously it requires the actual source of impurity. And anything upon which any of their carcasses of these animals fall will become unclean. Thus, an oven or stove shall be demolished. They are unclean and they shall be unclean for you. Now, why do the oven and stone have to be demolished? Let's see that for a second. Um, demolished because the assumption was back in the day, the ovens and the stoves were made of earthenware vessel. Rashi says because an earthenware vessel cannot be purified. And back in the day, their ovens and stoves were made of earthenware. Today, oh man, we got stainless steel. Are you kidding me? We got stainless steel. We're good. We can kosher that. No problem, right? We got an app for that. Just dial it up to self-cleaning. Anyone who has a self-cleaning oven, you can make that kosher in like three hours. Boom, shakalaka. You give it a nice scrub inside, get it nice and clean, self-cleaning, wipe it down afterwards. You are the proud owner of a kosher oven. Yeah, there's other things that have to be kosher also, the kitchen counters and sinks and whatever, but it's it's super doable. Anyway, that's just a PSA for kosher, going kosher. Try it, you'll like it. Um, But anyway, the point is that you can only kosher something that can be kosher. You can only purify something that can be purified. But an oven that's made of earth, like back in the day, there are clay ovens. Whatever that looked like, you couldn't you couldn't kosher that. You couldn't purify that. You just had to break it, and then and then what are you going to do? I mean, might as well just get a new oven. I think that's kind of the message: break it, and then you're fine. And but I don't have an oven. That was the point. That was the you can't kosher that oven. Yes, Donna.
1: So I saw Rabbi Israel's apartment. It was empty; hasn't moved in yet. So he has to kosher the whole entire. Yes,
0: kitchen. yes, exactly. Unless it's a brand new kitchen, like if you install a new kitchen so then then in, it's okay. fine but if you move into an existing kitchen, I mean sometimes people get lucky and they move in and you know they had just I replaced
1: put in in, so I'm,
0: see so I moved in. right so if you right so if 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 one gets lucky and it it was newly installed or if you put in your own, then it's fine like in our house we put in um I'm looking right now we put in a new oven, a new dishwasher and I think that's it. It's the only, those are the only major things. We could have koshered the oven, but uh, it wasn't a great oven. So, we, And we do a lot of cooking, so, you know, you kind of need that. <laughs> you kind of need a good tool. on some of with it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. One day we'll bring that back. Okay, next. Ah, but, here we go, verse 36. But a spring or a cistern, a gathering of water, remains clean. Interesting. However, one who touches their carcass shall become unclean. I feel like the Torah is kind of going a little back and forth over here with stuff. And Rashi, 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 Rashi. Um, A cistern, a spring or a cistern, which are attached to the ground do not contract uncleanliness. Ah, interesting. What happens, listen to this, what happens if you find a dead mouse floating in the river? Aha, is the whole river impure? So he says no. Anything attached to the ground Spring, a cistern, a gathering of water remains impure. Sorry, remains pure. And that anyone who immerses in these collections of water will become clean from, their, from, from his uncleanliness or their uncleanliness. However, if you touch the carcass, you do become unclean. If someone touches the uncleanliness of their carcasses, even while inside the spring or cistern, he becomes unclean. Love that. Love that. Okay, I forget the rest of Rashi for a second. Let's just break this down. So you're just lazy rivering. You're just like you got an you got one of those like those tube things. What do you call them? Those um, an inner inner tube? Is that what it's called an inner?
1: Yeah, inner tube. Inner tube. Inner tube.
0: What does that even mean? Inner tube. Oh, whatever. Anyway, you, you're on a tube. You're. It's like the late the Chattahoochee shoot the hooch. Like it's not a tire. Oh, a tire that's what it tube. is got it got it okay that makes sense now so anyway you so now you're like you're just chilling you're like lazy river it's like and now and 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 you're just and you pull up and there's like this dead thing floating next to you and you're like oh bad day right and you're just like and but the water's pure and if you dip in that water you're pure but you know what if you touch that thing in the water. Mm. No, no. It's not like, you remember when you were playing tag as a kid and there was like home base and home base, like the other guy could touch you, but you weren't it because like nothing that touches you on home base matters. Water remains pure unless you're touching the actual thing. Then there's no home safety, right? That doesn't work. That's, uh uh-uh. Do not touch the dead mouse while in the lazy river. That's, in general, somebody should make that as a bumper sticker because I feel like that's valuable life lesson right there. Like, when you're on the lazy river, don't touch the dead mouse. I th- I'm pretty sure that's universal. Okay, but anyway, regarding ritual impurity, this is certainly the case. Let's get back inside. And, oh man, we got more details here that are so interesting. 37, and if of their carcass, of the impure thing, falls upon any sowing seed which is to be sown, it remains clean. Look at that. If you have a seed, right, a seed that is about to be planted, the seed remains clean, but, oh, whoa, one second. If water is put upon seeds, again, water is the magical ingredient here that, that renders something that makes it liable to become pure. If water is put on the seeds and then any of their carcass falls on them, then they are unclean for you. So water is what makes it, in, in, in halakhic terms, it creates the the heksher, heksher usually means uh, kosher certification, but it really means pre- uh, prepared or fit. Fit is better. It makes it fit, not to eat, but fit to become impure, liable to become impure. Water makes it liable. So if it's dry, dry seed, like a, I don't know, seed, like a planting seed, dry seed, and an, and a dead carcass uh, of an impure animal falls upon it, does, doesn't mess it up. But if that seed got wet, if it was watered at any point in time, Got a problem. All right. Now, next. 30, 39. And if an animal that you normally eat dies, so that means a kosher animal. Until now, we've been talking about non-kosher animals and things. Now, a kosher animal. If a kosher animal dies, one who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. Now, that sounds pretty similar to the way to the the law of non-kosher animals. Rashi explains, if you touch its carcass, but not its bones or its sinews, nor its horns, hooves, or hide, unless they are attached to the carcass. Aha. If a horn, ah, very interesting law. Take a look. And my friends, this is more practical than you think. Look at what he says. A horn that is detached from the carcass of the animal remains pure. It does not render you impure. In other words, only one who touches the carcass, but not the horn. If it's disconnected, which means, you guys ready ready for me on this? On Rosh Hashanah, when you hold a shofar, you know what a shofar is? It's a ram's horn. Here's a simple question. Before we would have just studied this Rashi, before today's conversation, if I would ask you the question, um, that carcass of an animal, pure or impure? Uh, I think it's impure. Okay, a piece of an animal, pure or impure? Impure. What about a horn? Impure? What about a shofar? Every time you hold a shofar on, on Rosh Hashanah, you're, you become impure? No. Why not? Because the Torah says. We, here's the verse. If you want to know why you can handle a shofar on Rosh Hashanah and not become impure, we got it right here. The Torah says when it comes to kosher animal, it's only if you touch the carcass of the animal that you become impure, but not a piece of the animal like the horn, etc. that was cut off already prior to you touching it. So, you can handle the shofar, you can sound the shofar, you can do the mitzvah, and you remain in a state of purity. Okay. That is that. Next. Um, verse 40. And one who eats of its carcass shall immerse his garments, and he shall be unclean until evening. And one who carries its carcass shall immerse his garments, and he shall be, be unclean until evening. Now, you might ask, why are you eating of its carcass? That's a valid question. We're talking about a kosher animal? Not a kosher animal. Is eating of its carcass like grilling a steak? Is that what we're talking about? So Rashi, let's see Rashi. Give me a second here. It seems like we're not talking about typically eating like a burger. You ate a burger, Oh, you ate from a carcass of an animal, then it's not good. I don't believe we're talking about that. You shouldn't eat roadkill. Yeah, but roadkill wasn't shechted, so it's not kosher. Anyway, maybe we're adding an additional uh, layer of prohibition on it. In other words, not only do you have to shecht it to be kosher, but if you ate it when it wasn't shechted, slaughtered properly, and it wasn't kosher, you're also impure. Maybe it's adding an additional layer of something on top of it. Because I think that's, that's the only way I can make sense of it. Um, I might be wrong, but I believe that that's what... In other words, yes, we are talking about roadkill, essentially. Um, of a kosher animal. And any, I'm gonna keep Rashi up for a second because I seem to be keep on toggling that back and off, uh, back, uh, you know, off and on. And any creeping creature that creeps in the ground is an abomination; it should not be eaten. I feel like we t- we talked about that before. Um,
1: Rabbi, yeah, um, for the shectering, what about the life of the animal that's to be shectered? I mean, are there requirements? You know, because there's a lot of variation in how animals are grown for potential slaughtering, you know, in general. You know, okay. there's some inhumane circumstances. Are there regulate, you know, must an animal that comes for shectoring have been in a situation where it was pre-shectoring that it was humanely raised?
0: The Torah, Torah law, Jewish law, doesn't, doesn't mandate that. Now, are you asking from an ethical perspective? I would say for sure. You're asking from a legal perspective. I think the Torah assumes that we're not mistreating animals because there are dozens of prohibitions against mistreating animals before that. But the question is, does that make it not kosher? It's almost like there's two different issues. It's like in lesson one of "You Be the Judge" that we're talking about. It's like you know, it's like murdering. Uh, you know, the kid poisoned his grandfather and then gets the inheritance. It's like, but there's two separate issues. It's like. Right? It's there's two separate things. So do we have to treat animals with respect and we have to take care of animals a hundred percent, right? What makes something kosher is a kosher animal that's healthy that's checked it properly. That's what makes a kosher if you violated one Do we then rob you of the the ability to do the other do we um, penalize you by saying you you mistreated this animal? So no longer can you use the animal? That Torah doesn't connect those two lines. The Torah does not connect.
1: It's a, mo- I think it's a modern concept, you know, because like you said, in the day, animals were not inhumanely treated. Oh, like exactly.
0: Right, talking. right. I, I, wasn't understanding what you were saying until you just finished that off. Yes, it's yeah. a modern. Co- I, well, I, I wasn't around before, right. before the now. Of the I don't believe that big meat, you know, like right. like That's mass, true. you know, mass, and it's not, I'm not picking on meat. It's just, but like, the idea of mass. What my grandfather used to tell me, what happens at like. um, uh, um, big, um,
1: yeah.
0: uh, what's a big poultry? There's a big poultry, um, um, not Dyson, a Purdue, 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 like at, at these places, what? man, man, oh man, it's, it's, it's so mass. The scale is so high. Uh, you know, the amount, uh, the numbers, the volume of, of, of chickens that are being, it, it's just like,
1: so. And they, and it, made, it goes through in also to the way the employees are treated. Did you know, that was one uh, early in COVID. Remember, that's where a lot of the mass outbreaks.
0: Happen. I do remember that now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, it's it's uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate always to point fingers at anything specifically because, first of all, I don't know directly. Second of all, I, you know who it's. It's easy for anyone to point finger at someone else. I think the point. Your question is a very good question. The question is, is kosher also tied into an ethical standard? The answer is no. But, but, the ethical standard is tied into the ethical standard. There's two separate issues. There's the kosher issue, and then there's the, and I don't only mean ethical, i.e. extra legal. There's literally a, 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 a multiple, many multiple mitzvot, obligations and do's and do nots regarding the ethical treatment of animals. Now, that doesn't preclude the possibility of of, of, of killing them or shachting them, slaughtering them for food. That's included in the Torah's view of this. But one doesn't affect the other to the point that we would penalize and say, oh, this animal was not grass-fed, it was not raised, eh, therefore it can never be used. That's not, that that those two elements don't, those, those two elements don't kind of, collapse on each other, just like, and it's. A, I'm sure it's a horrible example that I'm giving, but just like we said about inheritance, that inheritance, just because, you know, the the, the demise happened in, in, in an illegal way doesn't make the inheritance not flow. There's two separate issues. we got to deal with them both. So Torah would say, you know, we're not talking about kosher right now, we're talking about ethical treatment of animals, and let's focus on that, because that's itself a mitzvah. The kosher is kosher. And I know today you have some um, kosher certifying organizations that are trying to make it their standard that if they certify it as kosher, it's also going to have been raised ethically. They're going to go down to the farms, not only to the slaughterhouse, but which is where typically things are certified at that point, but they're going to go down to the farms and see where the animals are coming from and how they're being treated on the farm already. And that's, I would say, a wonderful thing. But I still think it's important. I mean, that's a wonderful thing because it's a wonderful thing. But I still think it's important to recognize that kosher means one thing and, and, and kosher treatment of animals means another thing. And there, those are two categories, both important, but one is not necessarily the same as the other. Because otherwise, and the reason why I'm emphasizing this and like tripling down on this is so that we don't end up confusing kosher with ethics, with right. ethics. It's a, it's, there is, there's more to it. And it's about making something spiritually suitable. It's about making food or an animal spiritually suitable for a human being. That's a, there's, there's, that itself is a field unto its own. About the animal, taking care of the animal, that's a field unto its own. Both should be happening. But the idea of kosher food, making food kosher, or preparing it in a kosher way, that's about transforming an animal with an animal soul, literally an animal soul, into spiritually compatible food for a human being. That's a different approach. If we just make it about the former, if we say, you know what kosher is about taking care of animals, but then we're missing out on that second piece.
1: I know, I just thought of, from what you were saying, right, it would be kind of like holding against the animal. You know, it's not, it wasn't the animal's fault, whatever his prior treatment was. Right, right, but
0: but it doesn't let us off the hook either. We have to focus on both. and I still think the biggest challenge we have is that we don't live with animals. I, I don't we. I don't, li- in other words, like if you live with an animal, you're gonna take care of animals. It's only when you're like disconnected, I feel, that like, you know, it's, we become a little bit callous. Someone who was a pet owner, right? Someone who's a pet owner couldn't imagine, God forbid, I mean, uh, exceptions are exceptions, but the normal situation, couldn't imagine God forbid, doing anything to harm. There's a sensitivity, a natural sensitivity of living with that animal. Back in the day, people lived on farms and had animals, and even today people do that. I, I get that, but like, you know, us city slickers, right? I don't think, you know, some people have like goats and chickens or, you know, in the neighborhood, but like it's not the norm necessarily. I think that does us a disservice because I think there is a lack of sensitivity. Um, but I also know that, you know, with that sensitivity doesn't preclude, at least within Judaism, the idea of you know, of, of, of preparing it for kosher food. In fact, as we've explained many times, based on Kabbalah and Judaism, is that it's the ultimate elevation, for, potentially elevation for the animal, to rise out of the state of animal into the state of human, and then to the state of divine, which it could not rise without having been... Um, um, integrated within, within a, with another form of life, which is really what happens anyway to all forms of life. Everything becomes integrated, reintegrated, right? Life comes from the earth. It returns to the earth. You know, the, the mineral feeds the vegetable. The vegetable feeds the animal. And in this context, you know, in this belief, the animal feeds the human. And the human feeds God, so to speak, by doing what God wants, expending energy to that end. Okay, let's jump back inside. Um, and see where we're up to. Creeping creature that creeps. Oh, so we said, any creeping creature that creeps in the ground is an abomination, should not be eaten. Rashi says, this comes to exclude mites. Oh, man, am I reading this? <laughs> Seems a little gross. Mites found in chickpeas and in beans, and the pea beetles found in lentils, since they did not creep on the ground but within the food. Ay, ay, So you can eat that. Aye, yo, uh, Rashi, I love you, man. Um, Rashi is saying the only exclusion are creeping creatures that creep on the ground. But if it was born almost in the food, then it's not prohibited. Ay, 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 ay. However, when they exit into the air and creep, they become prohibited. Oh, there you go. Because on the ground. All right, let's move on. It shall not be eaten. Um, this comes to render guilty someone who feeds a person with the flesh of a creeping animal just as he would have eaten it himself. Okay, next, any creature that goes on its belly, any creature that walks on four legs, to any creature that has many legs, like a centipede, among all creeping creatures that creep on the ground, you shall need it, they are an an abomination. Okay, Rashi uh, talks about earthworms. He talks about scorpions. He talks about beetles, called escarbo in French. Escarbo? Is that a thing? Escarbo? The beetle is called escarbo?
1: is called
0: snails. snails. No, 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 no. This is something else. the beetle called escarbot. Escarbot. Hmm. Chafesnish. I
1: know No. I'm
0: not. I'm. I'm not an expert in uh, beetles uh, in old French. Anyway, uh, but but uh, Rashi certainly is. The creature that has many legs. And yes, I called it. It's the centipede. As I re- yeah, I recall that that I refers to the centipede. Called centipede in French. Oh wow! In Hebrew, he goes centipede. Centipede. Okay, centipede. Next, uh, 43. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping creature that creeps. You shall not defy yourselves with them, and that you should become unclean through them. What does it mean, don't become abominable with them? By eating them, Rashi says. Um, Uh,
1: What is abominable in Hebrew? What's the word?
0: uh, Sheketz. Is it
1: just as I don't know. Every time I would hear this, see this word "abominable." I don't know. It's a little shocking. Is it just as shocking in the Hebrew?
0: Yeah, it means it means it's not only forbidden. It's a little bit on the gross side. It's, it's, it's almost like a judgment in that. It's not not only not only like let it go, but it's kind of like ooh, it's mm, it's abominable. Like like don't 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 go there. It's uh, it's it's next level. Uh, not good. Yeah, it, there it, there, the it, there is a little bit of a of a of a, of a ratcheted up kind of sense to that. I agree agree with you. Um, uh, God says, oof, look at this one. God says, if you defile yourselves through these creatures on earth, I too will defile you in the world to come and in the heavenly academy. There you go. The Talmud sets out a threat, quoting God. If you defile yourselves here, watch out. Okay, all right. Uh, We got to soften up the the Talmudic scholars. We got to teach them a little Chassidus and Kabbalah. And, uh, and get it going. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, I'm sure there's a context there that, you know, if we looked into it, we would see a little bit more information. All right, let's continue. Verse 44. For I am the Lord your God, and you shall sanctify yourselves and be holy. Here you go. As we wrap this up. Sanctify yourselves and be holy. Why? God says, because I am holy. And you shall not defile yourselves. And you know what, Joy? I think you're right. Look at this. You shall sanctify yourselves. Make sure you eat what's, what's good. Because you know what? I'm holy. I also watch what I eat. You watch what you eat. I watch what I eat. I told you my diet. I'm very specific. God says, I'm very specific about my diet. You also should. And you shall not defy yourselves to any creeping creature that crawls on the ground. Hey, I don't want that either on my altar. Do not bring that stuff in. Do not bring beetles and centipedes and bugs and rats and mice and and all that stuff into my house. Like, keep that out. And you know what? You also have a good diet. Have a clean diet. I'm pretty sure that's straight up what it's saying over here, if we, if we read into it a little bit. Um, yeah, Rashi says, Just as I am holy, for I am the Lord your God, so too you shall make yourselves holy. Sanctify yourselves below on earth. Okay. Okay, let's continue. For I am the Lord who has brought you up from the land of Egypt. Oh, he pulls the Egypt card. Yeah, why should you be holy? Because I took you out of Egypt. You know, that's the parent. I brought you into this world. Right? I took you out of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy because I am holy. Look what Rashi says, literally this. I am the Lord who brought you up on the condition that you accept my commandments. Why do you think I took you out? Just so you should eat a centipede? Are you kidding me? Are you... I took you out of Egypt so that you should eat centipedes? Not happening, brother. Not happening. Seriously now. Drop the centipede. Let it go. Um... Another explanation. Oh, look at this. God says, "If I had brought up Israel from Egypt only so that they would not defile themselves with creeping creatures like the other nations, dayenu, that would have been sufficient for them." And then an exaltation that would have been an upgrade. Look at that. If this is the only thing you get by not being in Egypt, right? Egypt, the implication is they would eat anything, right? In Egypt, they didn't care what they ate. If the only thing is that now you're more discerning about what you eat. That, that's enough. That, that already puts you on a different level. That's kind of cool.
1: I, I didn't explain the apple well enough, and now I'm going into great detail.
0: Exactly. Forbidden fruit wasn't just one tree. Now it started off one, but now you push the buttons, now you got a bunch more things. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The Torah concludes last few verses. You can already tell it's like the wine, like kind of wrapping it up. This is the law regarding animals birds, all living creatures that move in the water and all creatures that creep on the ground to distinguish. These are the laws of what you, to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Rashi says, not only, yeah.
1: So this is why, this is why they cannot invent a better mousetrap. Because the simple cheap one, you pick the whole damn thing up and throw it away. That's right. But the expensive one, you can't, give, you can't keep it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can't keep it. You could break it, but you can't keep it. Exactly. To distinguish, Rashi says, not only must you learn these laws about uh, forbidden uh, kosher, not kosher, but also you shall know and recognize these creatures and be proficient in identifying them. Know, know your centipedes, know your beetles, know your whatever it is. Um, uh, one second. Oh, look at this. Look at this. Rashi with the, with the pipes. Rashi's hitting the pipes. I mentioned this before, but look at this. You should discern between the unclean and the clean. What does that mean? Rashi says, but is it necessary for scripture to state that we should know the difference between kosher and non-kosher animals, like a donkey and a cow? When the difference have already been explained? What's it doing here? Why is the Torah saying you should know the difference between the unclean and the clean? What, you mean a donkey and a cow? Got that. Like, are, already there. On that. So what does that mean? Rather, listen to this. What is meant here is to distinguish between what is unclean because of what you and what is clean because of you. Uh, because of you. In other words, when you shecht it, that's what you have to be careful of. Listen to this. Namely, between an animal whose trachea was slaughtered halfway through, which is considered not kosher, it may not be eaten, and an animal who had most of his trachea slaughtered, which makes it kosher. Let me, let me explain. I said before that there's two, the trachea and the esophagus? Are those the two pipes? Windpipe and the food pipe? Trachea and esophagus? Maybe. I think so. Anyway, so both have to be slaughtered most of the way through. Are you with me? If you're dealing with a pipe, pipe that goes down like this, right? So it has to be severed more than 50%. If you're looking at the the thing, it has to be cut more than halfway through. If it's if you only cut one of the two, not kosher. If you cut both, but less than 50%, of either, it's not kosher. So that's what the Torah is saying: distinguish between what's kosher and not kosher. It doesn't mean between a donkey and a cow. You don't need to do such examination, but you will have to do examination after you shecht to look in and check the check the shchita, check the incision, and see if indeed you got it right or not. And by the way, a lot of times it just it it, it doesn't end up being done correctly, and then the animal is just not kosher. I mean, the I mean animal is kosher, but you can't eat it anymore. It's, it goes to the non-kosher section of the slaughterhouse, or it's sold, or whatever they do with it. Um, back inside, but here we see again the pipes, which is cool. Um, okay, and again, discerning between an animal that may be eaten, etc. Does Scripture have to tell us to distinguish between a deer and a wild donkey? Also not. Uh, are, are they not already delineated? Rather, and check this answer, rather to distinguish between an animal in which signs of a trefa have developed and is nevertheless kosher, such as an animal whose injury does not render it a treif, and an animal in which signs of a trefa have developed and is not kosher. So this gets into even more minutia. So after an animal has been shechted, you checked, okay, you start off with a kosher animal, like a cow. Then you slaughter it. Then you have to examine the the shkita. How did you get, did you cut, sever what needed to be cut and severed? But then you check the animal, make sure the animal is healthy. And then you have to determine if you find some sort of internal, when you do this kind of internal kosher autopsy on the animal, uh, I mean, not autopsy, but like whatever, internal examination on the animal, now you have to determine whether or not the animal is healthy. And sometimes the animal will have a little bit of an abrasion internally, like on the lungs, and you'll say, you know what? It was still healthy enough to live. Sometimes there'll be enough of an abrasion where it was not going to live. I, I've mentioned this many times. My grandfather was the lung specialist. That was on the, on the, in, the, in the operation, I mean, he did other things as well, but his specialty was examining the lungs because that is really the key part of determining whether the animal was a viable, healthy animal or what we call a treypha. You know, we call it treif. Anything that's not good, we call it treif, but it's a, it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, Treyph specifically refers to an animal that died of natural causes or died of other causes other than being slaughtered. And even if an animal was slaughtered, shechted, by a Kosher ritual slaughter, if the animal is deemed to have, to, if it would have died fairly imminently because of an internal injury, then you can't eat it. Can't eat it. Even though the shechita may have happened before its untimely death, but it was headed down that path, and thus it's not kosher. It's called the trefa So trefa means, a trefa like treif. trefa literally means, I know how we use it today, anything that's not kosher. Pig is trefa. Not, not literally. Pig is not, pig is not kosher. It's not treif. Treif means an animal that died of causes other than shechting. So that's, I mean, pig, who knows? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But uh, more specifically, refers to, like, let's say a kosher animal. Say you have a cow that, that dies. You can't eat it. It's kosher, right? It's not kosher. You didn't shech it. Even if you shechted it, it, if the lungs have a hole in it. And I know I've mentioned this before. You know, they, they blow up the lung. Not, not blow it up, not blow it up. They, they, they put air into it, and then they see if there are any bubbles. You with me on this? Is that
1: after after it
0: checked it? 100% afterwards. Yeah, not, you can't so, do that.
1: Okay, so it's not enough that it, there's still the examination that happens after.
0: To make sure that it was a healthy, viable, strong, long-lasting you know animal. If the animal was on its way out, yeah. if the animal was on its way out anyway, it's trefa. Then it's, it's like it died of those natural causes or unnatural causes. You don't consider the shechita, the shechting, you don't consider that to have... Been, it's called the trefa. So he says here, Rashi says, that's when the, when the Torah concludes it, saying you have to distinguish between what's kosher, what's not kosher, what's pure, what's impure. What does it mean? Not between a donkey and a cow. We got that. We got, we got that. It's to distinguish between whether you shechted it 49% of the pipe or 51% of the pipe, or 50 and 51%. And it's to distinguish whether the lung that has a little abrasion, whether it would have lived with that or would have died because of that. So there's something called the sircha. A sircha means an abrasion, adhesion on the lung. So a lung that you blow, you blow up the lung and it expands and it holds the air, healthy lung. But then you, you feel it for smoothness. How smooth is the lung? You, could, you actually do a physical, you touch, you, you visually inspect and you touch the, the lung. This is after the animal's been shafted, obviously. Right, no one's going in. Okay, then you check the lung to make sure it's smooth. If it's smooth, you know what we call that in Yiddish? Glat, ever hear the word glat kosher? Glat, glat literally means smooth. Glat kosher is about lungs. Literally, it's about lungs. Glat kosher means such a healthy animal, it was smooth, smooth lungs. If it doesn't have smooth lungs, you know what that means? It means that there's scar, scarring. It means there was a hole, and the lungs kind of developed new tissue to, to compensate, and thus there is another like layer or flap of, 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 I don't know, skin or membrane, whatever is on the lungs, that, that is part of the lungs, and then it's not smooth anymore. And then it's not glatt. But some say that if you can peel off the adhesion and the lung is still viable underneath, like a scab or you pick up, then it's still glatt. Some say they have a higher standard of glatt that even if you could theoretically peel it off, it's still not glatt anymore. So Chabad standard is the highest level of glatt, which means the moment it has anything that's a little a, you know a little uh, disruptive over there anything that 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 seems like it wasn't 100% healthy cuz it had been a hole a small hole it healed from the hole it got a scab it, 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 it it's scar tissue done forget about it so chabad standard is the highest level of glatt which is no adhesions it's called sircha's no nothing like that nothing that even if you peel it forget it done that doesn't mean it's not kosher it just means it's not that standard it's a higher standard of kashrut. Now if the lung straight up has a hole in it, the animal's gonna die. Forget it. Forget about it.
1: Remember Hebrew National? National? Higher standard, yeah.
0: By the way, okay, Hebrew National has its own things, but I'll tell you this. If you want to know how, like, why, why, why are um, cows' lungs, why do they get punctured? Like, why why are we even talking about this? What what are the odds of that? Extremely high. You know why? Because they eat from the ground and there are needles in the ground and sharp objects in the ground and they eat and they don't, they don't filter the food. They're not taking it and putting it through. There's no, right, there's no FDA watching their food, they're watching, combing all the lands where animals roam.
1: Cutting it with a knife.
0: They're not cutting with a knife. They're not soaking you know the rice before making sushi. It's garnished, are you kidding me? I'm not, I, they're not even sushi rice right, to begin with. I'm just saying, they're just eating. In fact, I, I recall this, I think I'm correct. They used to put, Batter, uh, not batteries, magnets. I should probably Google this because it's been years since I heard my grandfather say this. Magnets in the cows of stomachs. Magnets in, let me just double check cows, stomach.
1: So they could attract them back? (laughs) Wow.
0: Yep. Would have to be a big one. Our patented cow magnets are used to protect cows from harm, harmful ferrous materials that they may inadvertently ingest while grazing. Cow magnets are popular with dairy farmers and veterinarians to help prevent hardware disease in cattle. I want to tell you this. My grandfather, okay, you, you want to know the real truth? I'm, just, I'm, I'm kind of piecing my memory back together. My grandfather used to bring back the magnets. Hmm. Our refrigerator his refrigerator, right, he used to put up some stuff he used to bring home to him, his refrigerator used to have cow magnets. I know it sounds gross, this is legit, I'm telling you this is legit, you can ask my mother, because she'll, she'll know this from, you know, an older, you know, he used to bring home from the slaughterhouse, these magnets were the strongest magnets you ever met. Now you're going to say that's disc- it's gross, it was in the stomach of a cow. Okay, so you wash it, right? I mean, obviously it was washed, but these magnets, I remember what they look like. Even they, and I haven't Googled. I just Googled the concept. I didn't Google any images, but it was a magnet that had like a, It was like had a ridge. It was like indented in the middle a little bit. It was like rectangle. Um, it was usually like a little bit rusty, which now I'm thinking about it like indicates a little bit of grossness, but they literally would put them into the stomach. I guess they would feed them first a magnet. The magnet would sit there and then needles. If the, if the animals ate needles or, or metal or whatever, it would attract to the stomach, I guess, or something, or maybe the ferrous I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. Like, again, I was a kid when I heard all this stuff. So it's been it's been a few years and a kid's mind processing these things, you know, sometimes you misunderstand or whatever. But it's something about that. But anyway, animals eat all sorts of things and things, internal organs can get punctured. So hence the need to check the lungs. And that's how Rashi concludes this Torah portion. Wow. Any, uh, any anyone check up the magnets situation or that's uh, or you guys are or we're good to go. Oh, yeah. That's these it. are they. Oh, my God. These are they. Oh, my. they were not. I, I misremembered this. This picture looks like they. Okay. Yeah. That's it. It was, no, it was like a tube. It was like a metal tube. I was, yeah, I misremembered it. Maybe there were other types, but no, it's like a metal tube. It's like a metal rod. Okay. I got to ask my mom. I'm going to speak to her today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to verify my memories, because, you know, who knows. It's been, it's, been, it's been a few So the
1: Daily Wisdom's good today. What does it say? It says, uh, avoid being duped. Spiritually, this decree refers to making the moral distinction between what is acceptable, healthy behavior, and what is not. The distinction is easy enough when matters are clear and obvious, but all too often the distinction is blurred, and what is in fact defiled can easily be taken as being undefiled.
0: Amazing. That's a perfect way to conclude this week. Because the last little piece of the Torah is about not only looking at the big differences, uh, donkeys and cows, but looking at the 50% or the 51% of the 51% of the pipe and looking at the, 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 the lung. Is it healthy or unhealthy? Is it viable or not viable? Is it punctured or not punctured? Or could it survive or not? It's looking at with a magnifying glass. And in our lives, we also have discernments to make not between the big things, hopefully that we've already figured out to some extent, but it's about the subtle things. It's almost like when we have to make those choices between, you know, this mitzvah or that mitzvah or this, you know, I could go about it this way or that way and, you know, it, and it's, it's very subtle. It's not easy. The easy stuff still takes courage. I'm going say easy stuff. The stuff that's black and white, it still takes courage. But imagine when it's not so black and white, then it becomes really challenging. So I guess that's the message that we should discern, and we should work at this. And with God's help, we get it right. All right. Thank you for joining me this week for DPP. It's been a wild run. Um, again, highs and lows and then food. But I do think that we have um, a lot of strong themes here, especially regarding not everything. The, the core idea that not everything that we see do we need to run after. Not everything that looks good should be ingested. And sometimes we're going to need a bit of a magnifying glass to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. All right, we'll see you all next week. Have a good Shabbos, have an inspiring Shabbos. Sunday morning is Kabbalah and coffee, as usual. Sunday morning, we also have um, a special event on Zoom, which means that you can have two tabs open, two devices, double dip if you wish. Are you gonna be in (laughs) both? I'm not gonna be, no, I'm not gonna be there live. I'm not gonna be there live. He's going to be broadcasting live from another chabad, so we're just we're just um, making the option available for our community to join into that broadcast. Um, but our class is still going to go on. Yeah, all right. Good to see you all. Good, Travis. Take care, Joy and Donna and Sarah. Take care, everybody. Travis.